In case you wonder, I, I was talking to David earlier, and I just said, David, are you doing any kind of special? He said, you want me to? I said, well, yeah. And uh, so that wasn't even planned. David's been a friend of mine for closing on 30 years. And uh, it's kind of amazing that I never get tired of hearing him sing. And I'm so thankful for our friendship. And now to have the opportunity in the last couple of years to get to know Miss Pat, a wonderful pianist, enjoy traveling up here with her. I wanted to give you a quick update too. Uh, and I know Mark's kind of, he's kind of in the loop on this and it's going to affect him tremendously. But uh, first of all, Mark and his family, Allie and their children are some of the most precious people that I have had the opportunity to meet and to get to know in the last few years, especially with the context of planting a church up here in Rock Hill. We had been praying for a while at our church at Covenant just to be able to plant a church and it just, God just kind of dropped it in our lap with Mark coming down there wanting to become an ordained elder and then God opening the door here in Rock Hill. And uh, so just so you know, our plans are, Lord willing, we have two men in our church that we're going to be ordaining and hopefully we're going to be ordaining Mark at the same time, getting close to the end of spring, early summer. And so when that happens, uh, you might not see me quite as much. Uh, he'll be taking the reins completely here at this church and is already doing a great job. So I'm so thankful to that and, and the ones that are helping him. Always pray for him. Always pray for the leadership as they get established here in this church. And always pray for his family. Anytime you are in ministry and you're in the leadership position, and especially whenever you speak the truth in this context where we are in our culture nowadays and also whenever you fight the evils of our culture that you're seeing in our culture today and you're very vocal about it you're going to be the one that stands out and gets attacked so you need to really be praying for your church and then pray for the leadership pray for mark and his family and i know they would greatly appreciate that and the support as we move forward i've seen a number of men that i've known through the years that have been in ministry and then got out of ministry and uh, I have great, great hope and great uh, positive outlook for what I see in Mark and his family. So I think God's going to use them mightily. This church is going to become a great, great church here in Rock Hill. And so I'm looking forward to what God's going to do. Now today, we're going to turn our attention back to James. In, in your Bibles, if you'll open up with me to James chapter 2, in God's providence, he has allowed me to be able to teach two Sundays in a row here, and, and rightly so, because we're considering the topic of saving faith. And we're in the topic here that James is discussing in faith and its relationship to works. And this is such an essential, essential doctrine in Scripture. So what I'd like to do just for our reading and setting the context is to read James chapter 2, verse 21 and following. James 2, 21 and following. The Word of God says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Prior to this century, no serious theologian would have ever entertained the notion that it was even a possibility to have faith without works. No one would even entertain the thought that you could be justified without sanctification. No one would ever have thought that you could be saved without having any transformation in your mind or your heart. They would have echoed verses like 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 that says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Then another verse that would have been similar would be 1 John 2, 4. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It is also reflective of Romans chapter 8, verse 29, which says, And whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. These verses, like the passage I just read in James 2, 
reflect the teaching that whenever you are truly saved, there is a radical transformation that occurs in the life of the believer. That there's now a new set of desires, a new set of affections, a new set of wants, a desire to be repentant over sin, a desire to confess one's sins, a desire to be more like Christ and to follow him and be obedient to him. Yet today, there seems to be even more who believe that that is not the case. They believe that there's even a possibility that you actually could be saved with no transformation whatsoever. That you could have your, if you will, ticket to heaven, yet never really have a desire to follow Christ whatsoever. But the Bible teaches us this. There is no justification without sanctification. There is no such thing as salvation without a transformation. There is no such thing in the Bible as a relationship with God that does not have the righteousness of God. And there is no such thing as faith that saves without works. Yet that did not stop men like Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who was then the co-founder with his brother of Dallas Theological Seminary, who believed that you could actually be saved and never have any spiritual commitment whatsoever. In 1918, Lewis Berry Schaefer published a book entitled, He That Is Spiritual. In that book, he was articulating his belief that 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 through 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, was teaching two classes of Christians, the carnal Christian and the spiritual Christian. Now, I know that probably you have heard of the carnal Christian. I've heard it for years that there's kind of two groups of believers. There's the carnal Christian And then there's the spiritual Christian. And the point is, is that the carnal Christian is the one who's made a profession of faith, but doesn't follow Jesus. He lives in sin or he lives in rebellion against God or the word of God or has no desire for the things of God. Hence, he's called the carnal Christian. And then the spiritual Christian would be the one who made a profession of faith, lives that faith, follows Christ and desires to be obedient to him. In Lewis Perry Schaefer's thought in his dispensational dichotomies he chopped up the new testament and basically taught that the gospels specifically the teachings of jesus were not for the church age and that anyone who was saved in the church age were quote under grace not under law and therefore the teachings of jesus that even mark read earlier about taking up your cross daily and dying for him being willing to give all for him did not apply to the Christian today, but only was part of the Jewish era or that age in which Jesus was in. It's a tragic thing to think about, but B.B. Warfield said that that echoed the jargon of the higher life Christianity, where you basically have the people who were kind of mediocre, they were saved, but they didn't live up to the standard. And then you have the spiritual Christians or the higher life Christians, or you may have heard it called the victorious Christian life, where they were living higher, more committed, more obedient They were the higher life Christians. But that's actually two classes of believers that the Bible does not teach. It does not teach carnal Christianity as you are hearing it today. It is definitely teaching that you can be a Christian in sin. But what it does not teach is that you can be a Christian that has true saving faith and live in a continual, habitual, unbroken pattern of unrepentant sin. Because if you are truly a believer and you truly know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will sin, but your sin will be affected either by the Holy Spirit's conviction, another brother in Christ confronting you, church discipline. But if you don't respond to any of those, God could take you out. The point is, is that we have a huge population of people today who literally confess that they know the Lord Jesus Christ, but live in habitual disobedience to God. And yet at the same time, believe that they're okay, that their faith is going to save them. The teaching that I'm talking about that Lewis Perry Schaefer and then later on Charles Ryrie and some others that came out of Dallas Theological Seminary, Zane Hodges was another one. uh, They taught this view called the no lordship salvation and the no lordship salvation would teach this is that you can be saved by believing in Jesus as your savior but you could defer till later to submit to him as Lord. That's why you heard for so many years people would say, well, I remember when I was saved at so-and-so age, but I did not make Jesus Lord till I was so-and-so age. You remember that? You may have been part of that group that did that. 
I remember hearing that many, many times. I was saved whenever I was 10 years old. I made Jesus my Savior, but it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I finally come to understand that I needed to make Jesus Christ Lord of my life. Well, I understand what they're saying. What they're saying is I was saved at 30. And what they're also saying is they don't understand that Jesus is not Savior and then later Lord. He is Lord now. And you are either submitting to him or you're not. And if you're not submitting to him, there's a real problem as to whether what you believe happened at 10 years old was real to begin with. But as a result of that, I mean, they have chopped that up and divided it up and taught what is called a no lordship salvation. That is not uncommon to hear even today, especially in a lot of your contemporary churches. They are definitely embracing this and with full force. They've divided the offices of Christ and call him Savior and then later defer to him as Lord. And there's a reason why they make these distinctions. And it even is the same reason why I believe that some of the professors and leaders at Dallas Theological Seminary adopted this particular view. And the first primary reason was their unbridled zeal of some of the dispensationalists to make dichotomies that the Bible does not. They chopped it up in such a way that it allowed for that kind of teaching. To say that the kingdom teaching that Jesus gave in the Gospels was not applicable to the Christian. But that was only applicable to the Jewish age. And then there was a hyper-separation of law and grace. The second reason why they made this distinction, and I give them credit for this, and that is this. They wanted to protect grace. In other words, they didn't want any mixture of works with grace. And I understand that. I mean, the Bible's clear, right? We are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know that. And they wanted to protect the grace of God and salvation from what they believed or perceived to be a work. Like repentance was considered a work. Or submitting to the Lordship of Christ and being obedient to Christ was a a work. In fact, in those days, there was a teaching going around that was saying that that repentance was not repentance from sin. But repentance was simply a change of your mind. They took the word metanoia, which is translated repentance in the New Testament, and they translated it and understood it to be only a change of mind. Now, to be strict in the lexical form of it, absolutely, that's what the word means. But that's not the only way you understand a Greek word. You don't just go to the lexicon and get the first definition that pops up on the screen and say, there's your definition of the Greek word. Greek words are often like Hebrew words determined by their context. And so even in the case of metanoia that is translated repentance, that word has more to do not only with a change of mind, but also a change of the will and a change of direction. And so it had in its context to be understood as changing your mind, yes, about Christ, changing your mind about Jesus as Savior and Lord, but also changing your mind about sin And turning from your sin to follow Jesus Christ. But in their effort to protect grace, they opted to remove biblical repentance. And they opted also to remove submission to the Lordship of Christ in fear that that would be understood as works and would be a corruption of grace. Those of you who are from the Reformed persuasion, you do know that the Bible teaches us that these things that they would call works are actually gifts of God's grace. Faith itself is a gift of God. Submitting to the Lordship of Christ is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. In other words, nothing that occurs in salvation is something that you and I do on our own or conjure up on our own or make ourselves do. It is all of the grace of God. And I believe a third reason why they adopted that particular view was this, is that they had to explain somehow the thousands and probably millions worldwide of professing believers who were indistinguishable from the unregenerate. I mean, what do you do with it? You've got thousands upon thousands of people who claim the name of Christ and yet don't live in obedience to him and have no desire whatsoever for him. We could fill this church building up many times over with people that we all know that have had a profession of faith, made a statement, been baptized, came to church for a little while, and then abandoned the whole thing, have nothing to do with it whatsoever anymore, and yet still they are absolutely convinced 
that if they died right now, they would go to heaven? The Bible says no. The Bible says no. Faith without works is dead. Justification without sanctification is not biblical salvation at all. These dichotomies have led, sadly, to unfortunate impositions on the gospel itself. Whenever you divide Jesus as Savior from Jesus as Lord, you literally destroy the gospel of salvation. You end up with a salvation that is not a saving gospel. You end up with a gospel that is really easy believism that so many are wrapped up in today. I hate to say it, but this is the norm rather than not the norm in our culture. And still many are believing this. And that's why this passage in James 2 is so essential for us to understand because James is teaching here in James 2, 14 through 26 that genuine saving faith is never alone. It never exists apart from genuine works of righteousness. In other words, to say that you believe and yet you don't have any proof of it is an indication that maybe what you say you believe is not really what you believe. You may not be real. You may not be real at all. So what does James say? Well, in our quick uh, review here, we looked at last week the question of dead faith. That's in verse 14, just backing up a little bit for review. The question of dead faith in verse 14, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? One translation translates verse 14, what use is it or what benefit is it? What profit, my brethren, if someone says with his mouth that he believes, but he doesn't have works? And James asked the question with a definite article attached to the word faith, which can be understand, can that kind of faith save him? What kind of faith? The faith just says, I believe, but there are no works. Can that kind of faith save him? The actual construction of the Greek demands the answer, no. That kind of faith cannot save you. And he goes on to explain why. And that moves us to the second point, the illustration of deedless faith. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of them says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The illustration is simple, as we noted last time, would have been very common to the people of Israel and the Jewish people particularly. They would have known about poor people. They were everywhere. There were those that were just regular poor people. Then there were the beggarly poor people. It was customarily to run up on someone who had genuine needs for food, genuine need for clothes, because they may have been living literally in rags. And so if you were to go to that person who has a genuine need and say, be warmed and filled, or God bless you, or we'll pray for you. And yet you don't give him what he needs. What is the use of the words that you just shared with that man? They are empty words, worthless words. They have nothing behind them but empty, heartless compassion. It's not even really there. And so he illustrates Faith that doesn't save by the same illustration of someone going to a needful person and offering them only words. It means nothing. The third point we noticed was the observation of orthodox faith. Verse 18 and uh, through the next few verses, verse 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, James is going to develop that a little more a little later with the illustrations of Abraham and Rahab and the body. But the point is this. What James is simply saying is this. You claim all day what you believe. I can't see what you believe. I have no idea that your faith is genuine until your faith has feet with it or legs with it or hands with it or you do something. I can't see your faith. I can't see your belief. And that's what James's point is. You can talk about having faith all day long, but until you actually have works, I can't see it. Then he adds this most astonishing thought, verse 19. You believe that there is one God you do well. This was the Shema of Israel. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one, which was repeated a number of times a day by an Orthodox Jew. They were set apart from the pagan countries, pagan nations around them, because they were polytheistic. Israel was monotheistic. They believed in one God as opposed to many. And they repeated over and over again that they worship the one true God. And that is great. That's wonderful that you believe this, that you're right in your theology proper, if you will. Even commends them in verse 19, you do well. That's a good thing. In other words, I would never say it's wrong for someone to believe in the one true God. I would never say it's wrong to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I would never say it's wrong or a bad thing that they even believe that Jesus died and rose again. I would say at least you believe that. But the problem is just believing it won't save you. Just saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. Because that's his point. Look at it in verse 19 again. Even the devils believe. Hell is filled with believers. There are believers all in hell. The demons believe. The devils believe. Satan believes. You don't have to convince him. I can imagine years ago whenever you had the liberalism coming into the churches and those that were denying the authenticity and veracity and inspiration of the Bible how he just sat back and laughed. I mean, after all, he knew it was the word of God. He was there when it was written. He was there, as we talked about earlier, with the commandments, when God literally wrote into the stone the letters of the Ten Commandments. He was there when Moses penned the first five books of the Old Testament. He was there when Jeremiah wrote down his prophecy, or Isaiah, or any of the other minor prophets. He was there whenever the gospel writers wrote down their gospels. He was there when Paul penned the 13 books of the New Testament. He was there when James wrote. He was there when John penned the book of Revelation. And the point was, you don't have to convince the devil that the Bible's the word of God. He believes it's the word of God. What he wants you to believe is that it's not, or that it's not what God really said, right? So he'll attack it, but he does believe he's orthodox, but he's not going to be saved. Nor are the devils or the demons, they're not going to be saved, yet they believe, and yet they've got one on all of us. They tremble, they fear, they shudder. And James's point is so powerful here. He's simply saying, listen, do you understand that the very kind of belief that you claim will save you doesn't even do anything to save the demons, yet they have more fear of God than you do? That's amazing. So he says in verse 20, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? One translator Translated that verse, but art thou willing to learn, O empty man or empty head, that faith without works is idle or useless? And the point is, is that for you not to understand the very basic truth taught in all of the word of God, that just to say you believe is not enough. Your faith has to produce works or be fruitful in fact in verse 20 again where it says uh, you foolish man or foolish fellow that faith without works is useless there are a couple of possibilities there because in the original greek text manuscripts differ on the last word some use the word necros which is the word dead which we see a couple of other times in this passage but this text has a difference in some of the other greek manuscripts it's the word argos or argos it means useless Another Greek manuscript has the word empty. The point is, either way, the majority of the manuscripts kind of favor the idea of fruitlessness or uselessness, argos. The point is the same no matter which way you look at it, whether it's empty, dead, useless, or whatever. In other words, it's absolutely meaningless. Meaningless. It is a fruitless faith. It has nothing at all that would give any sign of life whatsoever. So we see the question of dead faith, the illustration of deedless faith, the observation of orthodox faith. And then we move to the last point, and that's today, the examples of true saving faith. And these are amazing. Abraham, Rahab, and then he uses the body in the last part of the text. But these illustrations would have been very familiar to the Jew. As I told you before, primarily this book was written to the Jewish audience. 
He calls uh, them the 12 tribes in chapter 1, verse 1. He refers to an assembly, which is a synagogue in chapter 1. He also talks about the Shema of Israel, I just referred to in chapter 2 and verse 19. So clearly these are primarily Jewish in, in audience that he's referring to. They would have been very familiar with Abraham. They would have known the history and the writing of Abraham and also Rahab. But let's notice, first of all, the illustration of Abraham's obedience. Look at verse 21. Abraham's obedience. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now you stop right there and just kind of put a little slash mark, hashtag, or whatever you want to call those things. Stop it right there for a moment. This was the area that gave Martin Luther the trouble. Where it says, was not Abraham our father, listen to this, justified by works? If you've ever read the book of Romans, you know why it would have given him trouble. Because the Bible is very clear that you and I are saved and justified, listen to this, apart from works. Apart from works. No one is saved by deeds of the law, right? Romans 3.19. We're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Not by works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Yet all of a sudden, James says that Abraham, our father, was justified by works. What does he mean? Well, he qualifies it in verse 21. He says, when? When Abraham offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. In other words, what James brings up is the information that we have recorded in Genesis 22. Where Abraham, in obedience to God's command, took his own son, his only son, the covenant son, and took him to be sacrificed, put to death, and burned on the altar. But before we get there, I just want to mention one thing about the term here, was not Abraham our father. That phrase, Abraham our father, again, a very familiar term to the Jew, Because they often referred to Abraham as their father. In fact, they relied upon Abraham as their father. They called him their father. They believed that uh, being the sons of Abraham was their ticket to heaven. Uh, The Jewish nation did. They thought that because they were the lineage of Abraham, that they were truly born from Abraham, that they were going to have automatic entrance into heaven. You remember what John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 9? He says, do not think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. The point behind that was that John the Baptist recognized that they believed they were okay with God because they literally were physical descendants of Abraham. They believed because they were born born in the right nation, the right family, had the right father, that they were automatically going. You can be very, very careful with that. We even have certain denominations that kind of give an affirmation, if at least a tip of the hat to say, just because you're born in a Christian family, it's assumed you're part of the covenant. There's nothing in the scripture to teach that. In fact, quite to the contrary. John eight thirty nine. even Jesus said this as he's talking to those uh, Jews. The Jews represent the leadership of Israel. It says, they answered and said to Christ, Abraham is our father. And that was like the end all of all arguments. It's kind of like what people say today when you're talking to someone and you're trying to share the gospel with someone and you're about to get into the details of the gospel and they say, I'm Catholic. Like, okay, that's supposed to end everything. Why? Because I'm Catholic, I'm saved? No, that's what they believe, right? That's exactly the way the Jews thought. They thought, okay, listen, Abraham is our father. What What are you talking to us about this for? We are already part of the covenant. We are already the children of God. We are already the chosen nation. We don't need a savior. And Jesus said this, if you were Abraham's children, listen to this, you will do the works of Abraham. And they didn't do that. They did not do the works of Abraham. They did the opposite of the works of Abraham. Jesus said this of Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham loved the coming of Christ and the the potential of the Messiah coming in the future, but not the Jews. The Jews believed that their physical lineage 
from Abraham would save them because they were the chosen nation and that they were automatically right with God because they came from the loins of Abraham. This is akin to, like I said, to people believing because I'm born in a Christian family, I'm okay with God or I go to the right church, I'm okay with God or I've been baptized or I'm okay with God or I believe in the right religion that I'm okay with God. I've heard that many times people tell me, well, you know, I'm a Protestant or I'm an evangelical or I, I'm not asking that. I don't care about any of that. You're not going to heaven because you have a tag that says I'm a Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Methodist. That's not going to get you into heaven at all. He's not going to look to that at all. You need to be a true son of Abraham who follows in the works of Abraham. That's what he's calling for. In Romans chapter 4, Paul the Apostle talks specifically about Abraham's relationship to works. And he talks about how Abraham was justified, listen to this, not by physical works of the flesh, but by believing. By believing. Galatians 3, 7, and 8 talk about this. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. How are they blessed? Because they believe the same message that Abraham believed. They believe in the same Messiah that would come through Abraham. Yet the Jews so often believed that because they had Abraham as their father, they were going to have automatic entrance into heaven. Was that what James meant by that term in verse 21? Was not Abraham our father? Well, actually, I believe he was going another route with that, even though that's true what I just told you, what they did believe. These that he's writing to, at least the majority of them, would be considered believers. There would be some mixed among them that would not have true saving faith, hence the reason why we have chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. But probably more likely what he has in mind is the very thoughts of Paul, the apostle, that Abraham was the father of all who believe. And his point that he's driving home is, look, was not Abraham our father, the father of all who were justified through faith and believing? Was not our father Abraham, the believer, justified by works? He's driving home a point. That this justification he's talking about here is not, sa- not saving justification. He's not talking about the kind of Justification that occurs at the moment whenever you confess Christ and believe in him as Savior and Lord. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of justification that vindicates what you believe. In fact, in verse 21, that's why he brings up his offering of Isaac, his son, on the altar. Now, I don't know if you know this, chronologically speaking, but do you know when Abraham actually was saved in Genesis chapter What? Do you know what chapter that is? Well, I know because I've already studied it. But it's Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, the promise comes to Abraham that he's going to bless them, bless him, and all the nations will be blessed through him. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God, right? And it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15. But do you know where the offering of Isaac is in the chronology of the book of Genesis? It's seven chapters later, seven chapters later. And by the way, many years later, because Abraham got a whole lot older, so much so that he had to be so old that he could not produce a child any longer, nor his wife, Sarah. And the point behind the text is this, is that whenever he says, was not Abraham our father in verse 21 justified by works, when he offered Isaac, his son on the altar, He's not talking about Genesis 15. He's talking about Genesis 22. And what he's telling us is this, is that what Abraham did in Genesis 22 when he offered Isaac on the altar was vindicating that what happened in Genesis 15, seven chapters earlier, was real. That's what he's driving home. He's pointing it out to them so that they understand that. Let's go back to Genesis for a moment. Turn back to Genesis 22. Let's look at this event that James brings up here as a vindication of saving faith. And notice a few points about it. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 and following. Genesis 22, verse 1 and following. A very familiar story to all of us and sometimes too familiar. Because we read past a lot of the important points here. 
So it says in chapter 22, verse 1, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Note that. He's testing him. Why is he testing him? Because he believed in chapter 15. Now his faith is being put to the test. It's being evaluated as to whether it's real. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now notice verse three. Did you notice there was very little white space between verse two and verse three? There's no hesitation. This is like, now, Lord, hold on a minute. Something's not quite right here. I think we need to rethink this thing. I mean, you're telling me to take my own son, my only son, that's the son of the covenant, the one whom whom all the nations will be blessed through, and I'm going to take him up here and kill him? And I'm going to sacrifice him on the altar and burn him there for you whenever I know that's what all the pagan nations do around me, yet you're not that kind of God? What in the world's going on here? According to the text, he doesn't even hesitate. In fact, he gets up early. He gets up early to go. In his obedience to God... He gets up early to go. Now, there's a reason behind this, and we're going to see why in just a moment. The reason why Abraham would be so eager to obey God, so willing to obey God, even though in our understanding of the God of Israel and our understanding of what God had planned through Abraham, it doesn't make any sense. But verse 3 says, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled the donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood and for the burnt offering and arose and went and placed it. In a place which God had told him, then on the third day, third days, three days of traveling, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here for, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I, Isaac and myself, will go yonder and worship. Then here's the phrase, and we will come back. Not I will come back. We will come back. In other words, Abraham already believed that God was a covenant-keeping God, a God who would keep his promises, so much so that he believed if God has this in mind, then he must be willing to resurrect Isaac from the grave or the dead. In fact, we know that's true because Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that's true. It's exactly what Abraham believed. He believed that God would resurrect Isaac from the dead because God doesn't lie. God does not break his promises. And he believed God. He trusted God. He had faith in God. Verse 6 says, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said to him, Here am I, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together and they came to the place which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood on the, in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him up on the altar upon the wood. And then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, And then verse 11 says, and the angel of the Lord called out from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said to him, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your your son, your only son from me. I don't know if you caught it, but verse 11 is the angel of the Lord, right? The angel of the Lord is talking to Abraham. And this same angel says, don't lay your hand on the lad. For I know that you now fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Listen, you know who the angel of the Lord is? That is what they call a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. The second person of the Trinity. This is a theophany or a Christophany, often referred to in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Jesus Christ himself shows up to Abraham, tells Abraham to stop the sacrifice. I know you fear God. 
that you weren't willing to withhold him from me. The most amazing thing about all of that is the very one who would stop the sacrifice of Isaac is the very lamb that would die for Isaac and Abraham. Powerful truth. But we all note so many other things in that text. But Abraham obeyed. In the face of absolutely contradictory doctrine, he obeyed. And he knew that what God had said was true. And he was willing to go and kill his own son, knowing that God would have to resurrect him. Listen, that is not natural faith. That's not man-made believing. That's a supernatural, God-generated Faith, the saving faith. And he was justified according to the text we have before us by works. Now the word that is used in James, and you can go back there to James 2. The word that is used for justified is the Greek word dikaiao. And this is a common word in the New Testament. It has two basic meanings. It has the idea of being justified before God, if you will, before the courtroom of God. And then it also has the idea of being justified or vindicated before men. Both of those definitions are supported in the New Testament. And the point is, is that whenever you talk about justification, you have to ask yourself a question, justified in what sense? In fact, there are some who believe that the translation of the word here in the text that we have should be translated, not justified in the sense of uh, declared righteous or made righteous, but rather it should be understood as this, is that Abraham, our father, was shown to be righteous by offering his son on the altar. That's the vindication of justification. And we already know that Genesis 15 is where he was justified before God. He was made righteous in the sight of God through the work of Christ that would come a thousand years, 1500 years later. But his justification before men, where his faith was vindicated and shown to be real, was many years later in Genesis chapter 22. And that's what he has in mind with the text. John Calvin said, faith alone justifies but faith that justifies is never alone. It always produces works. You literally can't stop it. It's like a fruit tree, right? That is healthy and it has life moving through it. It produces fruit. It produces fruit. Look at verse 22 now, James 2.22. Do you see then that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? The idea here in the faith is there's a definite article there. Do you see the faith was working together refers to his faith, Abraham's faith. But I want you to notice something else. I, I thought this was interesting this past week in my study of the text. The word see in verse 22. Do you see? That's a very common Greek word blepo. It means to see with the eyes, physically see with the eyes. It can be understood in the sense of perceiving with the eye. But most dominantly in the New Testament, it has the idea of physical sight with the physical eyes. Just two verses later, he, he says, see again. But the see there is not the same word. The see in the next verses is the word horao, which is a word that means to perceive or to understand. And so I believe what James is doing here, he's taking a word that you would not see in the English language because both are translated see. But in verse 22, what he is telling you is this, do you see literally, do you literally see with your physical eyes that faith that you cannot see produces works that you can see? Visible things, real things, tangible things. In other words, it's not just enough to say, I believe, I believe. If you really believe, it will produce acts of obedience, fruits of righteousness, and even just the simple illustration that we saw earlier, acts and deeds of compassion, and many, many other things, as we'll see in a few moments, that he emphasizes as we move through the text. The word that says working together in verse 22 that you see his faith was working together with works. The word working together is a word we get synergism from. You actually have genuine saving faith working together, synergized together with his works. 
And the reason why it is working together is because the faith is literally producing the works. The genuine belief is producing the works. As I told you, it's the same idea of a fruit tree. This is used in the New Testament. Jesus uses it. He refers to the true good trees that produce good fruit. In Matthew 7, although he's talking about the false prophets there, this is an applicable text in principle to even believers and non-believers. Matthew seven sixteen, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And the point is this, you got a bad tree, you're not going to get good fruit. You got faith that doesn't have true life, no works. It's not going to happen. I told our church this morning that whenever Angela and I decided we were going to try to survive the apocalypse, we bought two plum trees. We planted them in our front yard. That has been an absolute waste because, number one, we bought them from Lowe's. Don't ever buy your fruit trees from Lowe's because whatever they said it was on the tag is not what it is. All right? The thing's never produced any plums. In fact, whatever it produces, I don't even know what it is, and I'm not going to eat it. And every time I've looked for it to produce something once a year, I'm hoping, Lord, would you give us some plums no, it is a rotten, worthless tree. And that's what happens. You got a bad tree, you're not going to get good fruit. You got faith that's not real, no fruit, no works. And yet, what do we do all the time? We say, oh, I know. I know he doesn't go to church. I know he doesn't read the Bible. I know he doesn't really care about Jesus. I know he never talks about him, but he believes. The Bible says, oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. You can't have, as one pastor said, when I was first saved, he was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Westside, Jacksonville, Florida. I never forgot that man. He was saved late in his life. He came out of a country background, had a very strong country accent. And he basically said it like this when he would preach. And he would say, you can't have God come live in your body and there not be anything seen. Doesn't happen. You would think based upon what we hear today, oh man, there's thousands of people who believe, yet they have no fruit. No fruit. Any other time we would look at anything else in our life, we would agree something's wrong. You buy a blackberry plant and you plant it in the ground and you water it and fertilize it and it doesn't produce any fruit. You say, what? What do you say? Oh, that's a good plant. It's doing exactly what it's intended to do. No, it's not. It's a bad plant. Something's wrong, Right? So is the case with the fruit tree, and so is the case with faith. He says in verse 22, he says at the end of the verse, and by works faith is made perfect. Now that does not mean perfect in the sense of sinless. The idea that's translated here for perfect means complete or even fulfilled. We could even understand it that way because in verse 23, he picks up on the thought, amplifies it, and says, and the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted for him for righteousness. James explains what he means by perfect here. The word fulfilled doesn't mean prophesied, but the idea is what Abraham believed in Genesis 15 was shown to be real when he was put to the test. It was real. Otherwise, you would not know. So, verse 23 says, Abraham was called the friend of God. What an amazing thing to think about that a man who was once an enemy of God, deserving of the wrath of God, could be called the friend of God. Did you know you can be called the same thing in John 15, 14? The Bible says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Listen, if you're not a friend of God, there's only one other option. You're an enemy. And if you're an enemy, then that means the full wrath of God is over your head right now. But if you're a friend of God, what that means is you have genuine faith that produces genuine repentance that issues in obedience to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, not necessarily perfectly by no means. But as John MacArthur once said, and rightly so, it's not the perfection of your life we're talking about. It's the direction of your life. Where are you headed? What is your passion what is your desire? What are you doing? Look at verse 24. So he says, as I told you, he uses a different Greek word here. So you see then. 
Hara'o, which is a word, do you understand now? You perceive this now. You get it, right? He says, verse 24, that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. In other words, it's one thing to say you believe, but that's not enough. The way you verify faith, if it's real, is does he have works? Does he have works? Let's move to the second example. Not only Abraham's obedience, but Rahab's fear. Look at verse 25. This is amazing. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out another way? Again, the Jew would have been very familiar with the story of Rahab. They would have been very familiar with it. The second person that James uses to illustrate justification by works stands in stark contrast to Abraham. I mean, think of it. She's a woman, a Gentile, and a prostitute. Abraham is a moral man. She was an immoral woman. He was a noble Chaldean. She was a degraded Canaanite. He was a great leader, and she was a common citizen. He was at the top of the socioeconomic ladder, if you will. She was at the very bottom. Yet Rahab the harlot is listed alongside of Abraham in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, 17, and 31. And on top of that, you may find this surprising, but Abraham is actually the great-grandmother of David. So this woman, who was at the lowest level socially and morally, yet had enough faith in God to be made righteous by God and then proved her faith by hiding the spies and letting them out another way. You say, what does that mean and how does she have that kind of faith? Well, let's go back to Joshua chapter 2. Let's look at this together. Joshua chapter 2. This is a, an amazing story in the word of God given to us. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1 and following. If you remember the situation, the Israelites were going into the land of Canaan and they were going to conquer the cities at that time. They come to a city that we know today and they knew then as Jericho. Many believe that to be the oldest city, at least archaeologists have discovered, existed at that time, nearly 1,400 years before Christ. And now in verse 1 it says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men, this is Joshua 2.1, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly to Shittim, which is the same thing in the authorized version as the Achaia Grove. They said, Go and see the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of the harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered into your house, for they have come to search out all the land. And the woman had taken them, the two men, and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. Now it happened whenever it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went, went out. And I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and concealed them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. That means the shallow areas of the Jordan where they could cross over. And as soon as they were pursuing them and had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to the spies, that is, on the roof, and said to them, listen to them, this is key. Now, I'm reading this from the Legacy Standard Bible, and I'm reading it from the Legacy Standard for a reason. And the reason why is because every time the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all capitals is used, that is the name of God, Yahweh. Notice what she says. I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land were melted away before you. For we have heard that Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and you did, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan in Sihon and Og, whom you devoured and devoted to destruction. Indeed, we heard it and our hearts melted and a courageous spirit no longer rose up in any of the men because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Did you hear what she said? She's a pagan. She worships multiple gods. And yet now she's calling the God, the only true God, by his name. 
In other words, she not only believes in God, she believes in Yahweh. And she not only believes in Yahweh, but that she believes that he is the only God, the only true God. So Joshua 2.12 says, so now please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have shown loving kindness to you, that you also will show loving kindness to my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and preserve my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters alive with all who belong to them and deliver them and their lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours. And it will be when Yahweh gives us the land that we will show loving kindness and truth to you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. Now you think, well, that's kind of an interesting point. Why is that such a big deal? Well, there's a big deal for a number of reasons. Number one. That's usually where the roughest of the people lived was on the wall. And then also, it is also archaeologically and historically an important point. Because did you know that Jericho has been discovered and they've also determined all the details about the walls of Jericho? That there were two walls that encompassed Jerusalem. The first wall was approximately 40 feet tall. And then there was a large area that was filled in with rubble and dirt. And upon that were houses built. Then there was the second wall that rose even higher above the first wall. It was literally an impregnable situation where armies could not get in. There was no way to get in there at all. And so whenever the armies of Israel came and they marched around Jericho seven days and then finally shouted and the trumpets blew. You know the story, right? The walls came tumbling down. You're supposed to say that. But anyway, the point is, is that a lot of people misunderstand what really happened there. Because in the authorized version, the King James and the New King James, it says that the walls fell flat. And what some people believe is almost like an elevator shaft, that they just went down. But that's not actually what the word means. The Hebrew text actually means that they fell beneath themselves. And even the legacy standard uh, translates it that way in Joshua 6, that the walls fell beneath or fell over beneath. And the point is that the archaeologists over there digging around on that area actually found that to be true. That the walls, whenever they fell, they fell out and down and beneath the foundation that was up that was uh, that the, the walls were built on. And so when both walls fell down like that, it literally created a ramp to go up the first wall. A little bit, then the next wall, and straight up. No problems whatsoever to get in. All the walls fell, listen to this, except the northern part of the city of Jericho where Rahab lived. And they have discovered that there's one section on the northern wall that was not collapsed. And they even have the houses there that they've been able to excavate. Another thing that's amazing about that time frame, and this is just a side note for your own interest, is this, is that whenever Jericho was finally um, dug and they found some pottery there, the pottery was Canaanite pottery that dated it exactly to the right time that Jericho would have existed in the, the time of Israel's conquering of Jericho. Whenever they came and found the pottery, a number of the pots were filled with grain. Now that's, say, what's the big deal about that? Well, usually whenever you would take over a city or a town, you wouldn't leave the grain. I mean, you would want to take all the supplies. That's food, right? The Bible says it was conquered in the spring of harvest time. And that would have been the time that the, the grains and the granaries would have been full with grain. But God told Israel, whenever you go into Jerusalem or rather Jericho and you conquer it, don't take any of that stuff. You're only supposed to take the gold and the silver and the bronze for God, but not anything else. So they left the grain. And it was full and untouched, which also speaks to the short term that they had siege on the city of seven days. Had the grain been there for months, they would have ate it. Everything in the Bible is proven to be true about the story of Jericho. But one other thing I would just point out, and those are not important to our text in James, is that Rahab, a harlot, a prostitute, who had no true understanding in the beginning of her life of the true God had somehow got word of the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Yahweh of the deliverance of Egypt, the Yahweh of the people of Israel, and she believed it. 
She believed everything about him. So much so that she was willing to risk everything she had in order to save the spies. And by the way, I think it's important to note this, both with Abraham and Rahab. You often wonder what kind of works is it that James is really referring to? And we could list a few things. We could say going to church, helping your neighbor, reading your Bible, evangelizing the lost, whatever. We could go through a whole list of things like that that we would call righteous works or good works. But long before there was the first synagogue, listen to this, long before there was the first synagogue, long before there was the actual writing of the Old Testament first five books, long before there were ever any Bible studies or church gatherings, long before there was ever any evangelization of the lost, right? You had these two, Abraham and Rahab, willing to give everything to be obedient to God. In other words, the works they had is this. Abraham says, okay, all of my desires, wants, and ambitions are right in that boy Isaac. I'll give him to you, Lord, 100%. And then Rahab, Rahab said, I'll take my life and risk it completely for you, God. I'm going to give my life, put it, on, put it out there, if you will, on the line for you to be obedient to God and to protect his people. In other words, they both were willing to risk everything for their faith. Those are the kind of works we're talking about here. Not superficial, hey, you know, I go to church. That's fine and that's great. But that's not what Jesus talked about when he talked about following him, did he? He didn't talk about make sure you go to church and read your Bible and you've got works. What he said is this. He said, whenever someone truly comes to me in saving faith, this is what happens. This is Luke 9, 23. Read it earlier. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So this is a daily event, not a momentary event. The cross was not your broken down Cadillac or your broken down Toyota or whatever you have. It wasn't your mother-in-law who yells at you. It wasn't anything like that. The cross was and is to this day an instrument of death. And they knew it. Whenever Jesus said that, they knew exactly what he was talking about. That you must be willing to die not one time, not momentarily, but every day. That's the kind of faith he's talking about here. He says in verse 24, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever does not, whoever loses his life rather for my sake will save it. In Matthew 10, 37, he says, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, are you willing to count the cost? Or do you show that every day? Are you willing to give it all up for God, for Christ? That's the kind of things that we find here in the text of James. That's what they were doing in obedience to God. Let's move to the next and last example. This one comes quick. You have Abraham's obedience, Rahab's fear, and now the body's life. Look at verse 26. Last example. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. In other words, if you have, if everybody in here, all of a sudden, your spirits left your bodies and we were all gone, we'd have a bunch of limp bodies laying in the pews. And I could tell you all day long, we need some help around here. Not going to happen. No help. No use at all. Your body without your spirit is useless. It's dead, right? The separation of the body and spirit is death in the Bible. And whenever you have someone who does not have their spirit, they have a body that is no longer beneficial at all. And that's his point. It's very simple. So that faith without works is dead also. You cannot separate the two at all. Genuine faith that is genuinely alive is like the body that has the spirit. But also faith that is not alive, that does not produce works, is like a body that does not have a spirit. It's useless and only something that will grow in decay and corruption. And that's all it is. One last verse as we close today on this section. And it's found in Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 8 through 10. A passage that so many of us know so well. But listen to these words again. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. In this three verse section... 
It encapsulates the very teaching that James gave to us in chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What is he saying? You're saved not based on what you do or what you don't do. You're saved, justified, made righteous solely by the very unmerited favor of God. It is a gift. Even the faith that you have is a gift. And then he goes on and says, for we are his workmanship. In other words, we're not, it's not the end of the game, if you will. God's not done with us yet. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Well, how sure is this? Well, it's basically as sure as God exists. That's pretty sure. It says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Let me ask you a question. What God predestines, does it occur? Absolutely it does. It's part of his perfect will. This is not something that's up for, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to do that. This is the way God set it up. He set it up for people to be made righteous apart from works. But then he says to be vindicated by their works. He goes on and says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. An inactive faith, as one author said, entombed in an intellectually approved creed is of no more value than a corpse. Saving faith is an active faith. It's a working faith. And the relevance of this teaching today is enormous. People need to hear this lest they end up dying like we read earlier in Matthew chapter 7, where many will stand before the Lord and cry out, haven't we done these in your name? We've cast out demons and prophesied and done many wonderful works. And Jesus will say this, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those words are fearful. Examine yourself, brothers and sisters. Make sure you know that you know that you're a Christian Not by just saying you believe, but look at the works of your life. Look at your desire, your obedience, your affections, your want to, your repentance, your confession. All of those things that are part of a life of a believer that's truly converted. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the examples of Abraham and Rahab. And Lord, we give you praise for the work that you do in our lives, the regeneration by the Spirit of God, the sanctification through the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for enabling us to repent, enabling us to confess Jesus as our Lord, gifting us with faith that believes. And I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here today who is not truly saved, that you would show them by your Holy Spirit the truth, that you, Lord, alone can do this in their hearts. I pray for the believer that they would be encouraged to follow and walk worthy of the gospel to which we've all been called, that we would indeed fulfill what you have predestined for us to do, to walk worthy of that and to to produce good works, to let the world see our good works so that they can glorify God in the day of visitation. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.